Good morning, everybody. You get me down here today. You guys have been listening to me talk about Romans for the last four weeks. This is the fifth week. You've done very well. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> what I mean is you've just done very well listening to me. Um, so, so because of that, and because you're so nice to me, we're going to give you a break from that over the next couple of weeks. So um, it, this isn't the end of Romans, but after today, we're just going to put a pause on it for two or three weeks. I'm going to talk about Christmas instead. Are you feeling Christmassy? You will be after next week. <laughs> And, uh, and Joe's going to come and talk to us. Uh, you may, uh, by, by way of a heads up, if you haven't yet had a chance to read, I put a blog out and um, we put a link to it on the e-press uh, for the last couple of weeks about something called the Advent Conspiracy. We haven't had time to talk about it today, but it's very important. Um, and we're doing it next week because we want to we get us, ourselves thinking about Christmas before we arrive in December. That's why we're doing it, because it um, impacts how we think about Christmas, um, how we think about celebrating it, what's really important there. Um, yeah, I won't talk anymore about that. That's for next week. This morning, we're going to continue with Romans, um, the fifth part. And if you could put my uh, PowerPoint up for me, that would be great. We've sort of reached the middle of our journey, I think. Um, and we've moved on to a section called Hope, although we're just going to finish up a little bit of righteousness this morning. Um, previously in Romans, uh, we've noted that the gospel is the power of God. For the salvation of everyone who believes. There's a little summary on the top of your sheet there. We've noted that everyone needs the gospel. These are, these are just summary statements. Because all have sinned and fallen short of God's standards. We've noted that God's righteousness is giving us the right score. The sense of being right before him. God's righteousness is available to us now through Jesus' death on the cross. His blood has paid the price for our sin. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but over the past two or three weeks, as we've been singing and worshipping in church, I've noticed lines in our songs that remind me of all of these, this stuff we've been learning in Romans. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's almost like the Holy Spirit was in it or something. So this morning, you know, as we sang, this is the art of celebration, knowing we're free from condemnation. Actually, we haven't got to that bit yet, have we? That comes up in the next couple of chapters. Um, but it, it's all there. Romans is so key to what we believe as Christians. It's so fundamental and foundational. And that's why I make no apology for just spending a long time <laughs> studying it. And I, I, don't, I don't really, I do mind about the rest of you, but I'm having a great time studying it for myself. <laughs> If you are as well, if you're getting something out of it, well, that's even better. That's a bonus. Um, and, and just to say, if you're not a believer, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're, well, first of all, if you've sat through this and come back, congratulations. That's pretty, that's pretty good going. I did chat to somebody last week who, um, he's, he didn't profess to be a Christian at this point, but, uh, but he said, but I came back. I said, what, you came back? Wow, that's amazing. If, you, if you're not used to reading the Bible, this, this is a pretty heavy introduction to, to getting into the Bible. It's pretty dense. And it, at times it can be heavy going. Actually, if you're used to reading the Bible, it's still pretty dense and heavy going. Um, and my aim, whether we're believers or not believers, wherever we're at on our journey, is that we can try and access the treasure that's in here. Because there's such treasure in the truth of what Paul writes about in the book of Romans. And that's what we're trying to do here. So uh, last week, you may remember that we talked... Um, I'm going to skip through. These are, the, these are the highlights. We've talked about the gospel. We've talked about uh, the fact that all have sinned that nobody is considered good before God. We've talked about uh, the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. We talked about this thing about the diamond 
um, that the, the gospel is like a shining diamond against a really dark background of the world. And we talked last week about how this all is by, happens by faith alone. So you may remember the last week I talked about how we're not justified, we're not saved or made righteous by anything that we have done ourselves. There is nothing, there is nothing we can do to make this happen for ourselves. This is all about our faith in Jesus. And we talked about Abraham and David, the fathers of the Jewish faith, and how Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, right back, right back at the start of the story, right back at the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to skip through chapter 5, so I've just put a very little summary, the rest of chapter 5, I mean. I've put a very little summary there for you. I don't intend to go into it, but I'd love you to read it for yourself. Basically, this section is just... Um, it, it's almost poetic, the way Paul writes this. It's a sort of little summary meditation on all that's come before. And what Paul does is he kind of starts comparing. He does this compare and contrast between Adam, okay, who's obviously the, the first human and the one whose sin messed up the whole world, and Christ, Jesus, the one who saves it. And he, he goes through this whole kind of meditation on how through one man's life, death comes and sin, and through another man's life, righteousness and eternal life. So I'd love you to look at that for yourselves. The key verse there is, is verse 19. That kind of sums it up. And it says, For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of one man, the one man, the many will be made righteous. It's a summary. So as you're looking, if you, by the way, if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn it over to, we're going to be concentrating on chapter 6 this morning, Romans chapter 6. But I just wanted to sort of take a minute to sum up um, that little section of, of chapter 5. And then just to say this, that um, that section in chapter 5, the kind of comparison between Adam and Jesus, um, it kind of sums up the whole of every, everything we've talked about thus far. And uh, there's an early church father, an early second century theologian called Tertullian. And he said this about this doctrine of righteousness, which is another way that you could describe everything that I've just talked about over the last few weeks. He said, he said, just as Jesus was crucified on the cross between two thieves, so the doctrine of justification or righteousness, which forms the heart of the gospel message, is continually crucified between two opposite heresies. And they're described for you in that table that I've reproduced there, but hopefully you can see it a bit bigger here. One of those heresies, and, and the heresies come from keeping two truths together. So there is a truth that God is holy. Just checking I've gone to the right side then. <laughs> that God is holy. And that's absolutely true. God is so holy that our sins require punishing. And the gospel tells us that we are more sinful than we would ever dare to believe. And the heresy comes when we forget that. Because it just leads us to liberalism and permissiveness. And, oh, we can just do what we like. And there's all of that on one side. And then there's the other truth, which is that God is love. God is so gracious and so loving. And in Jesus through his love, our sins are dealt with. And the gospel tells us that we are more accepted in Christ than we will ever dare to hope. And if we forget that, it leads us to legalism and moralism. And so in the middle 
of these two things is the gospel of Jesus. God is holy and he is love. Legalism says you earn your own righteousness. Liberalism, on the other hand, says, oh, you don't need to be perfect. You don't need, that's okay. God will let you off. No, the gospel says both are true. We receive God's perfect righteousness. We get that from him. Legalism says that matter is bad and we are fallen and we need to be suspicious of physical pleasure. Liberalism says matter is good and it doesn't matter. We can do what we like. The gospel says matter is good and yet we are fallen. We can enjoy ourselves, but we also need to live wisely. I'll leave you to ponder on that, but that's a really, I thought, a really useful summary of where we've got to so far. And we're going to turn to chapter 6. I wonder which aspect of that summary stands out most for you. You know? Legalism says people can't change. Liberalism says people don't need to change. The gospel says people can change, but usually there aren't any quick fixes. It takes some time. That, by the way, I, didn't, I don't think I credited it. That's reproduced from um, a book by Tim Keller um, that I've uh, recommended to him before now. Let's look at Romans chapter 6, and if you've got your Bible, I'd love you to follow on with me. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. This is called Dead to Sin and alive to Christ. And as I said, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of done the wrath and we've done the righteousness and we're turning to hope now. In fact, chapters one to five of Romans that explain what it is that God has done for us. And what Paul is turning to now is not what God's done for us, but what God is going to do and wants to do in us. Okay, that was what he's done for us. Now we're turning to what he's going to do in us. That was called, if you want the long words, justification. This is called sanctification. Let's read chapter 6 and verse 1, and I'm going to read from the NIV. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We therefore were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to, to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. Count yourselves, Paul says, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Like I should say, this is the word of the Lord. And you should all reply, thanks be to God. Oh, I can see there's a few closet Anglicans in here somewhere. 
we'll, we'll root them out in the end. Um, this is where Paul starts getting personal. He's explained the broad themes of the gospel. And once again, he's anticipated the next question on the lips of his listeners. So, Paul, you're telling me that Jesus has saved the whole world from sin. Yes. That we can access that justification, that righteousness of his through faith in Jesus, not through what we do. Yes. And that we're now subject to God's grace and not to judgment. Yes. That sounds fantastic, Paul. Yes. Well then, should we just keep sinning so that that grace gets bigger? No. By, shall we continue sinning? The, the translation, by no, what is it? By no means. May it never be. That's another translation. And the first point of today's talk is that no means no. And there's Paul. What should we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Verse one. No. By no means. Absolutely not. No, nay, never, nay, never, no more. God has freed us from sin. His grace frees us from sin, but that is not, Paul says, a license to sin. You may know the story, you may have heard the story or read it for yourself um, of Jesus when he encounters a woman caught in adultery. So what happens is the Jewish leaders bring this woman out of the crowd. She's broken the law. She's been unfaithful to her marriage and the law says she should be stoned and the pharisees come out and say here you are jesus what do you want us to do with this lady and jesus answers brilliantly and says what he says which is the one who's perfect can throw the first stone and they realize he's got them and then he turns to the lady and jesus says do they condemn you and she says no And he says, well, then I don't either. I don't condemn you. What does he say next? He also says, but sin no more. And we need to hear that for ourselves. Jesus doesn't condemn us, but he also says, sin no more. It's really interesting that we've talked a little, because it's Remembrance Sunday, about the war. And a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian, wrote a book in 1937 called The Cost of Discipleship. He spelt out in his terms what it meant to him to follow Christ and against the background of Nazi Germany. And ultimately, actually, this stance led to his death. This guy, you could probably call him a martyr. But he wrote this, and I've quoted it on your sheet, about grace. He wrote something called cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer says, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer says, is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Strong words. Still grace, but cheap grace. Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is to hear the gospel preached like this. Of course you've sinned. Now everything is forgiven. So stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. And the main problem with such a proclamation is there's no demand for discipleship. And Bonhoeffer contrasts that with what he calls costly grace. And he says, costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes out of the word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It's costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. 
It's grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's grace because it's possible to do. So no means no. Cheap grace versus costly grace. No means no. And Paul also says that free means free. It's not that Paul thinks that we are now unable to sin. But he does think, seem to think, that we are able not to sin. He's saying that a fundamental change has happened in who we are. And that should affect our attitude to sin. Paul actually argues that to continue in sin for someone who's so fundamentally and radically changed doesn't make any sense. And he uses two particular metaphors, which I want to explore a bit. And the first analogy is what is this, that dead men don't sin. In verse 2, he says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? For verse 7, Paul says, because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. And in verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, when we gave our life to Jesus, our old self died. I talked about this recently because we had a baptism service. And in baptism, we see a symbol of what's happened. What happens in baptism is symbolic of what's actually happened in the spirit. We bury our old self and we are completely changed. I've got a little cartoon about this. I grew up in church and I used to sing a song that went, I am a new creation, no more in condemnation. We sang it again this morning, no more in condemnation. There we go. Here in the grace of God I stand. It's a terrible tune, but the words are great. Sorry, that was my musical snobbery coming out then. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me. I'm sorry. It's a great song. I am a new creation. I'm a new creation. As descendants of Adam, you see, sin was our nature. But Jesus broke all of that when he died on the cross. We were forgiven for our sin. We were freed from it. And we don't ever have to go back there. Our identity changed the day we met Jesus. We can turn to our old sinful selves and say, you're dead to me. I looked that up in the Urban Dictionary. It means I'm disowning you and I never want to see you again. That's the polite version. (laughs) Being dead to sin is not, it doesn't mean that now we don't want to sin or even that now sin has no more power over us. I wish it did. But unfortunately, it doesn't. Sometimes sin does exercise its power over me. Maybe it's just me. Or maybe it's you guys as well. It doesn't mean that I just simply ought not to sin now. It doesn't really go far enough, that. It doesn't mean that I'm slowly moving away from sin. And it doesn't mean that I'm no longer guilty of sin. But what does it mean? Being dead to sin, I think this is on your notes, means... That when I become a Christian, I put my faith in Jesus, I'm no longer under the reign of sin, the ruling power. That sin may still have power, but it can no longer force its power on me. It cannot dictate my behavior to me. There is a new power at work in our lives. We're not under sin's control. We've moved from darkness to light. This um, 
theologian called Charles Cranfield said this, it's in a little box on your sheet, that the death to sin which Christians are said to have died is, according to Paul, an event which has rendered their continuing in sin as something essentially absurd. Tim Keller says it in a slightly different way, but he's basically saying the same thing. While sin remains in me with a lot of strength, it no longer controls my personality and life. It's still able to lead me to disobey God, but now sinful behavior goes against my deepest self-understanding. See, if you're not a believer in Jesus and you do something that's against God's law, you sin, well, why, well, why wouldn't you? You wouldn't, why, why, there's, no, there's no other, why wouldn't you? But if you're somebody who is united to Christ, if you're somebody who's given your yes to Jesus, if you're a Christian, then everything's changed. So when a Christian sins, they're acting against their identity. Therefore, if I sin, it's because I don't realize who I am. I've forgotten who I am in Jesus. I've lost sight of who it is that God's made me. Dead men don't sin. And freed slaves, to use Paul's second analogy, don't take orders from old masters. There's a couple of verses there. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And then verse 14, a sin, for sin shall no longer be your master, not under law, but under grace. So in this analogy, Paul describes sin as like our old master, our old slave master. He says, you know, when you were a slave, your master had the right to tell you what to do, Paul says. But it's not like that anymore. Slaves are not free, you see. They are subject to master's control. They basically have to do what they're told. They may even be physically restrained, shackled. But once a slave has been declared free, well, that master can shout all he likes. It makes no difference. He doesn't have to pay any attention. He's free. However, sometimes, if you've been a slave for a long time, it's going to take you a little while to adjust your thinking and your mindset and your pattern. It takes time for you to be reprogrammed. And so whilst you actually are free, you might be so used to doing what your old slave master says that as soon as you hear that voice, it's like an automatic response. Back you go. I mean, it's as ludicrous, isn't it, as if you were to change your job, you finish with your company, and you go to a new company or a new school or a new organization, wherever you work, and your old boss rings you up on the first morning and starts telling you what to do. Can you just, it's ludicrous, isn't it? I don't work for you anymore. You can't tell me what to do anymore. Your old boss can't ring you up and start making demands. And we who believe in Jesus have been set free. We have moved to a new boss. We've moved away from an old boss. And that old boss has no authority anymore. He only has the authority that we give him. And we don't have to give him any. You know, when a football player transfers to a new team, if his old coach were to start shouting orders from the touchline, how, how's that going to work? He can turn around to the coach and quite justifiably tell him where to get off. 
We've been transferred. We're under new management. We've been bought. Our, our new coach is righteousness. How, how are we doing with that? Just ask yourself that question. How, how's that going for you? Do I really believe that? Do I really know that deep in my heart? Do we really believe that we don't have to sin? It's not inevitable. I wonder which areas of our lives we're finding that hardest right now. Just ask the Holy Spirit to show us. What is it you're doing, Holy Spirit? What are the areas that we're finding hard? See, because Jesus won this victory that we've talked about over the past three or four weeks, because of what he's done, we are now free to fight and win this battle. How do we make progress doing that? Oh, I never showed you this other one. Sorry. It's so carried away with the talking. It's a traffic light thing. Just three quick pointers on how it is that we can make progress. It's all there in verses 11 to 14. There's some things that we need to stop doing. There's a way that we need to change our thinking, and there are some things that we need to do. Stop, think, and go. The red is stop. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And verse 13, the first part of verse 13, don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Now that word offer doesn't sound like much. Don't offer. Some translations say don't present any of your body to sin. The Greek, the, the original Greek actually means don't stand beside sin. Don't let any part of your body stand beside or get close to or cozy up to sin. Just don't go there. That's Paul's instruction. Don't walk down its street. Don't send it an email. Don't click on its website. Don't offer our eyes to watch or read stuff that's just unhelpful, violent maybe, deceitful, materialistic. I don't know. Don't allow our mind to dwell on thoughts of pride or lust, criticism, unforgiveness, self-loathing, fantasy, jealousy. So easy, isn't it, just to wander those things through our mind and just to kind of drift on them. Don't use our tongues to say things that are unclean or unhelpful. Swearing or critical. You've probably seen this before. Quite, I think it's a Chinese proverb, but it's quite helpful in this, in this sense. See no evil, hear no evil, do. And sometimes you see a fourth monkey with his hands folded and it says, Don't, do no evil. A guy who I um, respect very much was my first sort of house group leader in the vineyard. Um, it's a vineyard church in Sutton Coalfield in Birmingham now, North Birmingham. David McNeil, and he said to me once, I remember um, somebody had got into a conversation with me and they were quite heavy going and they were having a go at me about something. I can't remember what it was. And I went back to David and I said, I, I, I just didn't really know how to handle this. And he said, when people come and they want to sort of bring things to me and they're upset or whatever, he said, I just have a little voice in my head that says, don't get in the ring, don't put the gloves on. Don't get in the ring, don't put the gloves on. And, and I don't know about you, but I tried to teach my kids this. I tried to model it in my family. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work. <laughs> 
I try to teach my kids, just, just walk away, just rise above this stuff. You know, Danny Silk in his parenting, just when the kids give you this, just let it wash over your head. Just say, not out loud, but in your head, whatever. My problem is I sometimes say it out loud and that, and that doesn't help. <laughs> and you may have heard this analogy, halt. I don't know about you, but for me, sin happens when I'm usually either hungry, angry, lonely or tired. Or sometimes all four. (laughs) But it only needs one of them. It only needs one of them. There's a story, it's a true story. It was made into a movie. The movie was called 127 Hours. It was about a guy called Aaron Ralston who was walking in the Utah desert and climbing. And as part of his um, expedition, he, he fell. I haven't seen the movie. I couldn't really face it. And basically his arm got wedged in a rock. And he stayed there for five days and nobody helped him out. And so he decided to do the only thing he could do, which was cut his arm off with a, with a, blunt, a blunt knife. It was that or die. So he cut his arm off. I couldn't stand to watch it, <laughs> to be honest. But I'm impressed. And that takes some guts, doesn't it? You see, Jesus says, if your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. Paul's quite soft compared to Jesus. Paul just says, well, just don't allow your hand to cause you to sin. Don't allow your eyes to cause you to sin. So that's the stop part. And then there's the think part, verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves, or one translation says, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And Paul is challenging how we think about ourselves. What do you think of when you think of yourself? Do you think I'm somebody who's going to give in to sin? I'm somebody who could let my old boss keep ruling me? Or do you think, I'm somebody who's in Jesus? I can win this one. You know, that's really important about how we think of ourselves. And it's especially important that we do that in the cold light of day so that it influences how we think in the, in the heat of the moment. And by the way, Paul never says that sin isn't pleasurable. Let's just get that out on the table. Paul doesn't say, oh, sin, it's really, really bad for you. He doesn't say any of that. We know that sin is pleasurable. It gives us fulfillment in the short term. It feels so good to call the driver in front of you who just cut you up an idiot. Well, it feels good to me. Does it feel good to anybody else? Why did you do that for, you idiot? It feels so good to have that extra piece of chocolate cake or to take your anger out on somebody just by letting letting go at them. I mean, it feels so good to let that anger out, doesn't it? In the short term, it makes you feel so much better for just a few seconds. Maybe for longer. Feeding our anxiety and our stress. Feeding our lustful thoughts. Paul never says it isn't pleasurable, but he does say it's not good. And all through chapter one, he paints this picture of how it destroys our intimacy with God. And God doesn't want that. That's why he made a way to escape it. And Paul doesn't say that it's possible. Paul does say, sorry, that it's possible to fight and win this battle. And all of that starts in the mind. It's all about the mind. It's all about how we think. And our mind, well, my mind anyway, needs retraining continually to righteousness. It's how I think about myself and how I understand that God sees me. Not as some kind of dead-in-the-ground sinner, but as his amazing son who he loves and smiles on. That guy's gone. I'm I'm this guy. When I'm, I went for a, a sozo 
appointment a couple of years back. God was really very kind to me and was dealing with some things that had been very powerful and personal in my life. And um, I won't go into that, but one of the wonderful things about Sozo is that they, um, there's just this opportunity for God to speak positively into the situation. And um, I remember just in my mind's eye, looking out of my window um, and seeing uh, the cross in the garden. This isn't particularly theological, I think. It's just for me, but it's personal for me. The cross was in my garden. Hanging on it were like dead skins. You know, like an animal. Some animals shed their skin. And they were like my dead skins. And it was like Jesus was saying, I've done that one. I've taken that one. I've taken that one. It was very, very moving and very personal to me that Jesus would say, I've dealt with that. Now just live in the new one. This week I came to this, the Cats of Fire conference and um, there was just such an emphasis on, on the Father heart of God and just the presence of God. And, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be really honest. And I said this at the conference, I, sometimes I just forget this stuff. I just get so busy with, you know, all the papers I've got to sort out and the admin and the, you know, sorting everybody's stuff out. But actually what I was really reminded of was just how much God loves me. Just for me. And um, and he smiles on me, and that's the kind of God that I want to be alive to. So retraining my mind is about remembering that I'm alive to God. I don't have to be alive to my dead stuff. I don't know where you stand on the whole um, Windows-Mac debate. Um, if you know me, you'll know where I stand, but that's not the point. Um, you, you used to be able to get computers that just booted up into one operating system and you had to either choose that one or that one. Nowadays, you can buy something called dual boot computers. So you can now buy a computer that will boot up into either one operating system or the other. But it won't boot up into both at the same time. Somebody's looking at me technically to say, yes, it will, Nigel. Sorry. <laughs> forgive, forgive, my, forgive my analogy. Assume that it won't. You see, it's a little bit like, as Christians who haven't yet reached perfection, we're carrying around this old operating system. It's full of bugs and viruses that basically have us sin and pull us down. And we're, but we're living under the new operating system of holiness and conforming to Jesus. So the question is, when the first screen comes up and it says, which one are you going to boot up into today? Hopefully that analogy works for you techies. Sorry. <laughs> I just had a moment when I saw James's face. He was like, no. Oh, dear. Never mind. I stick with my Mac every time, but that's just me. Um, sometimes we reckon we can move between the two, can't, don't we? But it doesn't work like that. Paul's instruction is to consider ourselves dead to the old one and just live, live to the new one. So that's the thinking part. And then the last part is the going part. And the second part of verse 13 says this. Offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. It's not about who we are. Sorry, it's not about who we are not. It's about who we are. And we become like the people that we hang around with, the people that we spend time with, the people that we look to, the people that we look to emulate. So if we're going to offer ourselves to sin, that basically means deliberately turning our back on God. 
But conversely, if we're going to offer ourselves to God, that means turning our back on sin. Remember that word offer, it means to stand beside. Go stand beside God. Don't go stand beside sin. Don't go down his road. Go to God's address. I'm somebody who used to think, from a, again, from a slightly musical snobbish point of view, that I didn't really want to listen to very much Christian music. Because, frankly, the quality of it was generally pretty bad and pretty poor. And I just couldn't let it into my head. And what I've learned over the past few years is that it isn't about the quality. <laughs> and actually, the quality is vastly improved nowadays anyway. It, but it's about, it's about what that, those songs and those words and that truth does to me and does to my spirit. And so I have playlists that just help me to remember to focus on Jesus. Gazing at him, standing close to him, practicing the presence of God. Paul's going to do that talk in two weeks' time. I'm just setting you up for it, mate. Paul's going to talk about how we're going to practice the presence of God as we come towards Christmas. It's not just about, but it, the presence of God is not just for Christmas, it's for life. <laughs> Sometimes we think that the only way that we can meet with God or experience his power is on Sunday morning between 10 and 12. Or if we go to a conference with Cats of Fire or somebody else. And the truth is the presence of God is with us the whole time. The whole time. We can choose to walk near to Jesus the whole time. And we can choose to walk away from sin the whole time. If that's true, why don't I do it more? I don't know. But here I am to encourage you and myself that this is possible. I lost sight of this this week. I was grumpy with my family. I wasn't responding well. Until I managed to... And I, and I am, I've still got them. Look, here you are. I'll demonstrate to you. Here in my bag... This is not for you to feel sorry for me at all. This is just a demonstration. Here in my bag are a bunch of papers that I've been carrying around with me for the last um, two weeks. Okay, all of which need sorting and attention and something doing to them. And I deliberately chose not to deal with them because I thought there's a conference going on here. I'm going to sit in the Lord's presence for two and a half days. And it really changed me. And I still don't know when those are going to get done. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow. And if you're waiting for something from me, apologies. <laughs> Most of my emails now start, um, dear such and such, I'm so sorry for not getting back to you <laughs> recently. Um, but I've, I'd lost sight of just needing to be in the Lord's presence. I'm out of time. I think I'm done. Should we stand together? <laughs> Come and help me, guys. Why don't we just invite the Holy Spirit? He's here already. Lord, we want to practice the presence of God right here, right now. There is nothing. Again, we haven't got to this bit. It's in Romans 8. There is nothing that will stand in the way. There is nothing that can stop us from encountering you. And so, Lord, in your presence, we stand.